Well, good morning, New Day. Good morning morning to everyone and a big happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the house. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms tuning in online. Uh, However you're joining us today, we're just so glad that you're here. Now, I realize today on a baby dedication day, Mother's Day, uh, maybe you're here today. You don't normally worship with us. Uh, You're just uh, here at your mom's request. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, Others of you, maybe you don't normally attend, uh, but you came to watch someone be uh, uh, dedicated today. And uh, again, you as well. We're just so glad that you're here. Uh, Since you might be new, I just want to explain that what we do uh, here as a church is we just study through the Word of God. Uh, Right now, we're studying our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, uh, if you're new to church and you don't know, in the Bible, there's four different accounts uh, of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, and John's account. And right now as a church, we're studying Matthew's account. We've just been going through Matthew's account, one little section at a time. And uh, that brings us to the section that we're covering today, which is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. And in this particular passage, Jesus's disciples make an all important declaration. And it's the very declaration that I hope you will want to make before you leave here today. And if you haven't, if you haven't already, and that is the declaration that Jesus is the son of God. Now, this is one of the many titles we have in the Bible for Jesus, and this one is the Son of God, and it's uh, misunderstood, it's underappreciated, and uh, I certainly hope to change that uh, as we work our way through our text today. Now, we're going to get to the text in just a second. It's about this declaration that Jesus' disciples made about Jesus being the Son of God, and we're going to begin reading that passage and breaking it down piece by piece, but right before we do, I actually want to talk about a different declaration. Uh, You may not be familiar with the declaration that Jesus's disciples made, but you're probably familiar with this one. And it would be our declaration of independence from Britain. If you know your American history, you know that at the start of the American Revolution, the goal wasn't to declare our independence from Britain. Initially, the Second Continental Congress wasn't out to become the governing body of a new nation. No, they set out just to change things. You know, we didn't want taxation without representation. You know, we wanted things to be a little uh, better between the American colonies and Britain. Uh, But by the summer of 1776... When despite countless efforts, no progress whatsoever had been made towards the goals of reconciliation and transformation in our relationship with Britain, John Adams and Samuel Adams began making arguments and convinced their fellow congressmen that the time had finally come for the American colonies to break free from what they considered to be the tyranny of of Britain. So Adams and Jefferson and Franklin and Sherman and Livingston, they were appointed to go ahead and draft what would become the announcement to Britain that we're breaking up, you know, it's not us, it's you, you know, Uh, and so they were uh, appointed to make that uh, announcement. Well, Thomas Jefferson, being the best writer in the group, took the draft and used it to write the Declaration of independence. And I want to read to you the very heart, the very core um, of that declaration. Be it resolved that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, 
that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And what a declaration that was. I mean, the rest is history. What a declaration that had such far-reaching implications. What a declaration. The truth is, I can't think of a more powerful declaration or a declaration that has further-reaching implications than this one, save one. And it's the one that we're covering today in Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, we find the only declaration that I know of that was more powerful than that one, and the only declaration we know of that had further-reaching implications than our Declaration of Independence. And again, it's the declaration made by Jesus' disciples that Jesus was the Son of God. We see four things in our text today, the crossing, the crisis, the coming, and the conclusion. And I hope that by the time we work our way through the text, you will see and understand exactly why Jesus' disciples ended up making this declaration that Jesus was the Son of God. If you're taking notes today, you can pull them out at this time. Uh, if you want to take mental notes, that's fine too. Uh, but however you're following along, here's the first of the four things we see in our text. We'll call this the crossing. The crossing. And we see the crossing in verses 22 to 23, where Matthew records, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So here's the deal. Our story today picks up uh, where last week left off. Last week, Jesus miraculously fed a huge crowd of some 25,000 people uh, with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And the people saw the miracle, couldn't believe it, and they said, you know what we need to do? We need to crown Jesus our king. Let's get him over here. Let's declare him to be king. Now, they didn't want Jesus to be king so they could submit to his lordship over their lives. No, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a deliverer Messiah. Not deliverance from sin as much as deliverance from the power of Rome, the nation to whom the Jews were subjugated during the time of Christ. Now, Jesus knew that if they declared him king, that word would spread, that Rome would hear, and that his life would be snuffed out prematurely. Now, Jesus was not afraid to die. When his time came, he would gladly lay down his life. But he had not yet fully trained his disciples, and he had not yet fulfilled all the prophecies that he was supposed to fulfill. So Jesus said, the time has not yet come. On this Mother's Day, we remember that children take nine months to grow inside their mother's womb. And there comes a time for them to be born. In the same way, there came the time for Jesus to die. And when that time came, he would not shrink back from death, but he refused to die before God the Father's appointed time. And so Jesus says to his disciples, in essence, we got to get out of here. 
I need to dismiss this crowd and you need to get in the boat and go to the other side so that we can stop these people who are uh, encouraging one another to have the courage to declare me their king. You see, the people would have been afraid to do this because if they declared Jesus king, that made them an instant enemy of Rome and Rome's fury was unbelievable. So Jesus said, let's get out of here. Let's break this thing up before things get out of control. So Matthew records immediately, Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. And he had to make them because they were right along with the people in wanting Jesus to be king. They too misunderstood that Jesus had to come and die before he could rule and reign. So the disciples were right with the people. Great idea, people. Let's crown him king. Let's overthrow Rome. And so the disciples, they didn't want to get in the boat, but the text says, Jesus made them. And he said, get your butts in the boat. You're crossing over to the other side. So here's the deal. The disciples set out from the shores of Bethsaida to cross over the Sea of Galilee, and they were to arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Gennesaret. And while they began the journey, rowing the boat across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus withdraws from the shoreline and heads up the mountain by himself to pray. And so that's the crossing where Jesus demanded that his disciples get in the boat and cross over to the other side of the lake. Now that you've seen the crossing, let's note the second thing we see in our text, and we'll call this the crisis, the crisis. And we see the crisis in verse 24 where Matthew tells us that by evening, which in Jesus's time referred to the hours between 6 and 9 p.m., the boat was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. So so the crisis was that they were in the middle of a violent and life-threatening storm. Now, in English, all we read is that they were a long way from the shore. The Greek that the New Testament was written in is a little more precise. It says that they were many stadia from the shore. Now, one stadium was 600 feet. And Mark's gospel uh, lets us know that, uh, excuse me, John's gospel lets us know that they were specifically 25 to 30 stadia from the shore, which means they were roughly three miles in to the six mile crossing. Put another way, they were smack dab in the middle of the lake. And it was at this time where they're crossing over and they're right in the middle of the lake that a furious storm broke loose with crazy winds that violently caused the waves to smash against their little boat. Now they were traveling west and Mark's gospel tells us that the wind was blowing from the east. So here they are rowing like crazy and not getting any closer to their destination because the wind is blowing against them. Now we know this because though they set out in the evening, it's now shortly before dawn and they're still in the middle of the lake. By dawn, they could have made the trip back and forth several times, but it's almost dawn and they're still in the middle of the lake. So they're fighting with the storm. They're rowing against the wind. They're making no progress and no doubt they are now at the point of exhaustion and the storm is threatening to drown them in the sea. Now, Jesus was on top of the mountain near Bethsaida, and it was springtime because we know it was the time of the Passover. So this would have been in the month of April, and they would have had a full moon. 
So from Jesus's vantage point, being on top of the mountains on the outskirts of Bethsaida with the benefit of the light of the full moon, Jesus looks down and he sees that his disciples are in trouble out in the middle of that lake. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus could see him. He could see that they were struggling and no doubt that they would not be able to hang on too much longer. These guys were experienced fishermen. At least several of them were. And so they were used to storms. And these weren't, you know, weak little men. These were, these were men who worked from morning till night. I mean, they, these were strong men. But guys, by this point, because we know the time frame, it's given to us in the text. We know that they were rowing by this point a minimum of nine hours at this point. Can you imagine? My dad took me on a fishing trip once out in the ocean and we went up and down and up and down. I was nauseous after 30 seconds. Here they are, nine hours. I did CrossFit once, believe it or not, and I had two minutes in, I was exhausted. These guys are rowing hard in a violent storm, nine hours minimum. They're about to die. That's what we're to take from this. And this leads us nicely, uh, the, the crisis now leads us nicely to the third thing we see in our text. And we're going to call this the coming. So the disciples' crisis leads to Jesus' coming to their rescue. We read in verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. The Romans divided the night, which was the time between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., into four separate watches. This way, the commanding officer could point to a soldier and say, I want you on watch one, I want you on watch two, I want you on watch four, so on and so forth. Watch one was 6 to 9 p.m., and that would have to be my watch because I go to bed early. I wouldn't want any of the other watches, okay? Watch two was 9 p.m. to midnight. Watch three was midnight to 3 a.m. And watch four was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And I mention that because Matthew tells us in our passage today that Jesus came to his disciples in the fourth watch of the night. So between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus comes walking across the Sea of Galilee. Now, I love studying this passage because though I grew up in church and had heard many times the story of Jesus walking on water, I never knew why Jesus walked on water. I always thought it was like, hey, I've got these divine powers. I might as well do something cool with them. Let me see if I can walk on water. You know, this will be fun. I did not understand that his disciples were in the middle of the sea and they were exhausted from a minimum of nine hours of rowing while dealing with violent waves caused by furious wind. And so Jesus walked on water because that was the way by which he could get to his disciples to save their lives from certain death. So he wasn't doing it just to do it. He wasn't doing it to, hey, hey, I just got this power. I might as well do something cool with it. No, he was doing it for a specific purpose. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he's beginning his third and final year of his ministry. He's one way away from his death. By this point, two years in, he had made a significant investment in the lives of his disciples who he planned to be the leaders of his church after his death and resurrection. 
And Jesus is up on the mountain on the outskirts of Bethsaida, looking down upon them. And they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The wind's blowing. The waves are going crazy. They're at the point of exhaustion. And Jesus can see it all. And there's no way he's going to let them die. And so he walks across the water to rescue the future leaders of his church. Now, as nice as it was for Jesus to come to their rescue, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were understandably terrified. And they said, it's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now, when the disciples saw Jesus, they didn't know that it was Jesus. And they wrongly concluded that it was a ghost, meaning a disembodied spirit, because they figured if it was a person, if it was a, an actual person with a body, then that body would have sunk into the water. But since what they were seeing wasn't sinking, they said, well, it must not be a real person. It must be a disembodied spirit, or as some translations say, a ghost. Now, I, I feel, I, I am sympathetic towards them jumping to the wrong conclusion. I mean, it is dark at night. There's a full moon, which always kind of makes it a little bit eerie. Uh, their vision is obscured because of the wind and the waves um, and the mist that would have been created from that. So I can certainly see uh, how they jumped to that wrong conclusion. Not to mention that in the time of Christ, there was the popular belief that evil spirits lived in the sea and that the spirit of those who had drowned haunted the waters. So we can understand how they jumped wrongly to that conclusion. All this to say, now, in addition to being exhausted, they are scared to death by what appears to be an apparition. So Jesus immediately speaks to them to comfort them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In other words, guys, it's not a ghost, it's me. And no doubt all of them were thrilled, but none more so than Peter. When Peter heard Jesus' voice, he was desperate to get to Jesus. Back in chapter 8, Peter and the disciples had been in a different deadly storm that may have been demonic in origin, and Jesus had rebuked the wind and the waves, and when Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, everything got calm in an instant. And can you imagine how desperate these men were for things to settle down? After being in that storm for so long, they were desperate. So Peter wants to get to Jesus. So when he heard Jesus' voice, he said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now, what I want you to realize here is that Peter's desire was not to walk on water. His desire was to get to Jesus. Because in his experience, when you're with Jesus, storms suddenly cease. So Peter didn't say, oh, Jesus, you know what? That's so cool that you can walk on water. Do you think I could give it a try too, just for fun? That's not what was going on in this passage. Peter was on the brink of drowning. He was scared out of his mind. And in desperation, he asked for permission to come to Jesus because he knew that Jesus was the one person who could help him and everyone else. And Peter was spot on. 
Peter gets to Jesus, together they get in the boat, and once again, the storm ceased. The Apostle John in his gospel adds this very interesting detail, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going, meaning the land of Gennesaret. Now let's see who was paying attention. Where was the boat on the lake? Where was the boat? It was in the middle. But when Jesus got involved, everything calmed down, number one, and then number two, they were instantly teleported or whatever you want to call it to the shore in Gennesaret. So again, Peter was right. Getting to Jesus was the answer to their crisis. So friends, that's the coming. That's Jesus coming to rescue the disciples in the midst of their crisis. And now that you've seen the coming, let's note the fourth and final thing we see in our text today, which we'll call the conclusion. The disciples saw everything that Jesus did and they came to a very specific conclusion concerning who Jesus really was. And we see this in verse 33 where Matthew records, and those in the boat, Jesus's 12 disciples, after seeing what he did, they worshiped him. And friends, here comes the declaration that we've been talking about this whole time. This is what this sermon is about. The declaration that the disciples made after witnessing everything that Jesus had just done. Their declaration was this, Jesus, truly, you are the son of God. Now, now friends, the title son of God, it is pregnant with meaning. So you got to give me just a couple minutes here to, to unpackage this particular title of Jesus. And, and once I unpackage it, if you pay attention along the way, you will have such a great appreciation for the significance of the disciples' declaration. So here we go. In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which was 1,000 years before Jesus was born, God promised David that he would raise up one of his descendants to be king over an eternal kingdom. And God said of this king, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 300 years later, in 700 BC, God reiterated his promise to David through his prophet Isaiah, saying this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And the people Isaiah was speaking to would have said, how can this happen? And Isaiah says, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. And friends, it was because of prophecies like this that the expectation in the nation of Israel was that one day God would send his king, his son, into the world to save the world from the penalty for sin and to provide for those saved a kingdom to live in that he himself would rule over forever. Fast forward 700 years. And the time has finally come for God's king, God's son, to be born into the world. 
So God sends the angel Gabriel to a young virgin named Mary. And here was his message. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Gabriel was saying, hey, Mary, you know the prophecy that God gave to David through Nathan? And do and you know the prophecy that God gave to the nation through Isaiah, that his king... His son would be sent into the world. Well, Mary, you are the fulfillment of that promise. Mary treasured these things in her heart, but now 30 years has passed. And John the Baptist begins preaching to prepare the nation of Israel for the arrival of her Messiah. And John the Baptist said this, pointing to Jesus, I have seen and I have borne witness that this, this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God. God gave John a special sign. He said, the one on whom the spirit descends, that is the one who is the son of God. And that's what happened with Jesus. Jesus was then baptized by John. And at Jesus's baptism, God, the father spoke audibly from heaven for all to hear. And this is what he said of Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, after this baptism, Jesus began ministering in Judea in the south and in Galilee in the north. And everywhere he went, he preached the good news of the kingdom. He healed the sick and friends, he cast out demons. And do you know what happened over and over and over again? When Jesus would cast out the demons, the demons would say to Jesus, they would say, I know who you are. You are the son of God. When Jesus was recruiting Nathanael to be one of his 12 disciples after only a short encounter with Jesus, Nathanael declared this. He said, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So remember, through Nathan, God promised David, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants and he's going to be king and he will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. And now Nathaniel's saying, Jesus, you are that king. You are God's son. Not to mention that all throughout his ministry, Jesus referred to God as his father and referred to himself as God's son. So bringing this all together, according to the testimony of the angel Gabriel, of John the Baptist, of God the Father, of the demons, of Nathaniel, and of Jesus himself, Jesus was the promised son of of God. Now, it's a pretty outrageous claim, right? If I said to you, I'm the son of God, you'd say, Mike, you're nuts. If you said to me, I'm the son of God, I'd say you're nuts. And no doubt many people in Jesus's day thought he was nuts until he went and backed up the claim. And he did this by fulfilling messianic prophecies. He did this by demonstrating divine power. He did this by performing the messianic miracles, the one that God specially set aside for him and him alone to perform when he came. And he did this by performing many other miracles, non-messianic miracles, like walking on water and stilling storms. 
And Jesus' disciples had seen all these proofs, one after another after another, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And though their faith started off really weak, the more evidences Jesus gave them that he was who he claimed to be, the more their faith grew. And what we see today uh, might be considered the climax of their faith. They, they saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus enable Peter to do the same. They watched Jesus calm a raging storm, not for uh, storm, not for the first time, but for the second time. And they experienced the miraculous transportation from the middle of the lake to the shore of Gennesaret in an instance. And guys, that was it for them. After this, no more doubts. After seeing all of this, they were convinced of Jesus's identity. So they made this declaration, truly. Now that word truly means beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus, truly, you are the son of God. You are that king who is to come. You are that savior who would save us from the penalty for sin and then provide for us a place to live forever as a citizen in the eternal kingdom that God the Father has appointed you to rule over forever. Jesus, we believe that you are him. They were saying, in effect, Jesus, the angel Gabriel's already declared it. John the Baptist already declared it. God the Father has already declared it. Jesus, even the demons have already declared who you are. We're late to the game, but better late than never. So Jesus, we want to make our own declaration. We want to be in agreement with God, in agreement with the angel Gabriel, in agreement with John the Baptist, even in agreement with the demons on this one point that Jesus is the son of God. And friends, what God is calling us to do today in light of this passage is simple. He wants us to join in the chorus of those who by faith declare Jesus to be the son of God, the savior of the world. He wants us to make our own declaration. We're not saved and made right with God because our parents once made that declaration or a grandparent once made that declaration. We're not saved because we, we come to church. We're not saved because occasionally we crack open the Bible. We're not saved because maybe we pop a couple bucks in the offering here and there. We're not saved because of any of those things. We are saved when by faith we declare that Jesus is who God says he is in Scripture. The King, the Savior, God's Son, the only one who can spare us from the penalty for sin, which is death. And the disciples were saved upon their declaration of faith. And God wants to save you today. And so you need that declaration too. Now, friends, you don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to say it in a prayer. In fact, sometimes we, we so often close in prayer that you think, I couldn't be saved unless I was praying. So, friends, we're not going to close in prayer today. We're going to end a little different today. Right now in your heart, you just tell God, God, I'm making my own declaration today. God, I, I declare you to be who you said Jesus was who the angel Gabriel said Jesus was, who John the Baptist said Jesus was, who even the demons declared Jesus to be. But God, today I make my own declaration, my own declaration of faith. And God, I'm trusting you based on my declaration 
to forgive me of my sins and to save me from the consequence and penalty for sin, which is death. Ask God right now in your heart to make you a citizen in the eternal kingdom of Christ. And that's exactly what he'll do. It's the only way to improve Mother's Day, okay? It's already a great day on its own, but getting right with God just elevates an already great day into a day that's even greater. I sure hope you'll do that. Now, friends, there's only one way to properly respond to this realization that Jesus is the Son of God. The disciples knew the right way to respond when they saw what Jesus did, which made them realize who Jesus was. Our text says they worshiped him. And friends, we ought to do no less. So that's why I'm going to give a special happy Mother's Day to Beth and to Marla. And it's why I'm going to thank them for ending our time together today by leading us in a very short time of worship. God is good. I'd like to invite you to stand on your feet and join us in a response of worship to the Lord this morning. Name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my what a wonderful name it is. Happy Mother's Day. Nothing compares Happy to Mother's it. Day. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. Say what a wonderful. What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ my what a wonderful name it is nothing compares to this what a wonderful name it is the name of jesus what a wonderful name it is the name of jesus yes jesus we praise you and we worship you, Lord. Let's just declare together, death could not, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again, and you have not, you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the powerful name it is the name of Jesus Christ my King what a powerful name it is nothing can stand against what a powerful name it is the name of Jesus 
powerful name it is the name of Jesus what a powerful name it is the name of Jesus thank you Lord amen amen thank you so much for worshiping with us for a little bit longer Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.